Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. They went in and only had one-year terms of service because they thought the war would be over in a year. And then two years, and nope, and three years, or the duration is what they called it. So if it ended within the three years, earlier than the three years, they'd be out. That still wasn't enough. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Mike Sassir talking about the remarkable military service of one particular regiment from Virginia. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode was brought to you by Casemate, publishers of The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and The Revolutionary War for the South by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Mike Sassir, talking about soldiers from the state of Virginia fighting well beyond their ascribed service and going on one of the most remarkable journeys of the American Revolution. You know, we talk a lot about sacrifice, service, and heroism in the American Revolution, but we often don't get into the minutiae of how long an individual would sign up to serve and what that service looks like. Mike has spent his career studying uh, the military servicemen of the Virginia colony, then the state of Virginia, and the story he has to tell tonight uh, is nothing short of remarkable. Some of the most important battles, some of the biggest moments of the revolution, all fought by these men whose enlistment had expired long before. It's really remarkable. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Mike Sassir. Mike Sassir, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. My background, I currently live in, in Williamsburg, um, and that's just kind of a mark of how much I loved this time period, the Revolutionary War, the American Revolution. So we moved here, my wife and I moved here, built a house uh, nearby so we could go and visit the, the, um, the colonial part of the town uh, very easily. And uh, we've been here now three years. Um, I've been a high school and, and community college teacher for about 30 years. Uh, I've written 14 books on the revolution with two in the loop right now or on the way. Um, hopefully one will come out at the end of the year and another will come out next spring. And um, I've been reenacting for a good 20 years now. And that's really how the passion started uh, in the uh, reenacting hobby, which has now become a lifestyle in some ways. I'm originally actually from Maine too. Got, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I love that. I always love to give Maine a plug because I started out in Maine and now I live in Virginia and um, couldn't be happier. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, you know, as a reenactor, uh, you're always focusing on 
on the units that you portray a lot. And so I'm in the 7th Virginia Regiment now. I'm the commander of it, actually. And so I have learned a lot over the years about the different um, variations of that, the, the different um, – there's several different um, – um, units called the 7th Virginia over the course of the war. And then when you get into the later part of the war, you start to notice everything breaks down for the Virginia line because of what happened in Charleston and the capture of the the Southern army. And um, Virginia has to kind of pick up the pieces. And so I was, I was doing research on, um, on general Muhlenberg, Peter Muhlenberg. And I found that he was put in charge of picking up those pieces um, when he came to Virginia, uh, Virginia in 1780. And then um, that made me more interested. And I started doing research on a, on a Lieutenant Colonel Richard Campbell, who actually commanded some of these troops uh, down in um, uh, Guilford Courthouse and Hobkirk Hill and 96, and then, of course, Utah Springs. So it was the research on Campbell that really got me interested to learn more about these 18-month men. I always thought they were like, I don't know, they weren't really continentals because they only served for 18 months, a year and a half. But the more I read about what they did, the more I was impressed by their service. I mean, they went through, they, they saw a lot of action through tough conditions and they were every bit as much of a continental army as say the original seventh Virginia and the, and, and the early troops. So that's why I kind of wrote the article. I wanted to share, share that with everybody. Why was Virginia so devastated by war? By 1781. Um, well, it's a combination of things. It starts. It really starts with the length of the war. You're you're now in your sixth year of the of the war, and so when you when you kind of plot the way the whole Virginia regulars were formed, um, the first two regiments were formed in 75 for a year, and then the next six regiments that they added were. Um, were signed up for two years and then the last six were signed up for three years. Um, and so that it gives you a clue about expectations. People didn't expect this war to go that long at first. And then of course, as in any war, the longer it goes, the more fatigued everybody gets. So uh, Virginia was having trouble um, raising men three or four or five years into the war. So that's one factor. And then, of course, the disaster at Charleston where um, General Lincoln surrenders the, the entire continental, southern continental um, army down there, um, including pretty much the whole Virginia continental line. Um, that did not leave that many um, soldiers left, co continental soldiers. Um, and then, of course, the third thing is by 1781, the war has come to Virginia with a vengeance because you got Benedict Arnold. Um, actually, in late December, he arrives to, to, to lead an expedition. And then more reinforcements come with General Phillips. And then General Cornwallis shows up. So throughout 1781, the war really focuses a lot of, there's a lot of activity in Virginia. And so Virginia's not able, I mean, they're struggling to deal with an uh, invasion and continue to supply General Greene because he's trying to free up uh, the Carolinas. And so all that together just, you know, kind of came together in 1781. It made it really hard uh, for Virginia to kind of fulfill its obligations and, and raise the troops that they, that they wanted to raise. In fact, the 18-month men were largely draftees. They were drafted. Who were the 18-month men, and how were they supposed to solve this problem? 
it, it's a little bit of combination. Um, after the Continental Line fell, and then there was also the Battle of the Waxhaws, where the last intact Virginia Continental unit that hadn't been in Charleston, um, it was actually on its way to join the troops in Charleston, heard about the surrender, turned around, was marching back to Virginia, and then was tracked down by Bannister Tarleton and his British Legion and decimated by them, at, uh, the Waxhaws. So after that, uh, the Virginia legislature scrambled to rebuild. And um, they ended up authorizing 3,000 new troops, 3,000 new Continentals for 18 months. That was that was the law that they passed. In order to raise that, though, because they, they just were not getting anybody to volunteer, they, they resorted to a draft. And so they, they the law specified that, that each county would would essentially call up all its militia or or create lists of militia, I should say. And then um, on a ratio of one for every 15 men on each one of their lists, right? So let's say um, York County, where I live, they, they have 180, um, 180 men or so, uh, 150, make it easy, 150 men total that are eligible to, uh, to, to be in the militia that are in the militia. And so, um, on that ratio, one out of 15, you got to pick 10 um, men to serve. And so from York and each county did it. And of course, I'm, I'm sure the numbers were a lot higher than 150 for, per county. So um, on that ratio, they, they kind of accumulated um, their draftees. Now, what's interesting is the counties were kind of left to their own on how to pick their, their soldiers. You know, it wasn't necessarily all uniform like everybody did a lottery or anything like that. I, I honestly don't know the details of how each county did it. But um, the guys started trickling in in the fall, uh, late summer and early fall of 1780. And their muster point was um, south of Richmond, a place called Chesterfield County Courthouse. Um, and so that's where they kind of accumulated. And General Muhlenberg was there at first. And then General Steuben um, showed up. He was sent down to take over and, and kind of whip things into, into, into shape a little bit. In your opinion, was the effort satisfactory to solving Virginia's manpower shortage? Oh, good question. Um, well, I know they they fell far short. They fell far short of, uh, of the 3000 that they had authorized. And what's funny is, there's a letter uh, that Washington, General Washington writes, he thought they were going to raise 5,000. So not 100%, I can't quite remember, but I thought maybe the quota for Virginia from the Continental Congress and from Washington, they expected Virginia to raise 5,000 men. The state said, we'll raise 3,000. They authorized 3,000. And they really only ended up raising about 1,500 men. Uh, so I don't know. Why, where the disconnect is, um, why they, they, they felt far short. But um, I believe it was Steuben who writes a letter to General Green explaining how they have to essentially reduce the number of companies um, by a good 20, 25% of, of what they had expected uh, for all the different units. It's very complicated to keep track of these guys because the numbers, I mean, what happened after the Charleston surrenders, there was a lot of officers that were still, they, they weren't captured. Either they were recruiting back in Virginia or they were sick in Virginia and their units got captured in Charleston. So we had an abundance of officers, but not enough men. And so keeping track of like the first, second, third, fourth, fifth regiments 
after Charleston is very complicated. And it's, I think it's easier just to, to pick them by their, the officer that ended up leading the detachments like, um, like uh, Richard Campbell led, led one and John Green led one. Those guys were down in um, Guilford Courthouse. And then Thomas Gaskins led one uh, here in Virginia. But but to answer your question, no, it didn't it didn't re- reach its objective. So I wouldn't say it was satisfactory. But on the other hand, they did resort to a draft, and then so you, I mean they tried. They they actually implemented a draft. I suppose it just could have been more inclusive or stricter or something. What were some of the obstacles these recruits had to overcome? Yeah, there was. Uh, you see this a lot in the letters. Um, from Steuben, especially um, to Green, um, there was a, a, just a chronic shortage of, of clothing. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is this is the pre-industrial age. So clothing, which we all take for granted now and we can buy off the rack really, really simply uh, and, ch- and pretty cheaply, it was much more expensive, especially uh, when we're fighting against um, the country that used to supply us with the vast majority of our fabric, you know, um, Great Britain. So um, these poor guys, they they didn't, they were, the number one thing they were missing was, was clothing um, for everything, uh, shoes, pants, shirts, and coats. And then even when they were finally sent down, they basically had one of each of those items. And, you know, as again, as a reenactor, I go out on the weekend, and come home and jump in the shower and throw my clothes in the in the washing machine after two days. These guys are out there day in, day out, and those things fall apart um, after long marches, you know, within a matter of a few, couple of months, really, maybe even shorter. And the guy, um, their officers are actually complaining about it. And there's one that, that there's one letter, I think it's from Green, who talks about how um, the shoulders of the men of Virginians' coats had uh, worn out uh, because of the musk, you know, they're carrying the muskets at shoulder arms and it just, it was done. It, they were, they were created pretty fast, pretty hastily, I suppose. So um, it just wore out. Uh, they were, they were, they were wearing essentially ragged um, coats um, within six weeks of their arrival with the army. And they had a long, long way to go uh, of service. And that's the other thing. The supply situation isn't like today where the United States Army supplies everybody. Um, states were responsible for their own troops. So um, Virginia had to send, you know, replacement clothing or those guys weren't going to get any. And, of course, Virginia had its hands full with all the, the invasion in 81. So that was the other problem. Um, you know, they were trying to kind of fight two two wars, in a sense, one down in North Carolina and then one here in in uh, Virginia. How did the arrival of the Baron von Steuben affect this fighting force? What did he accomplish there? Well, you know, most people know Steuben as the uh, kind of uh, the father of the American drill, you know, at Valley Forge. And so when he was sent down here, um, he, it wasn't so much about the drill anymore. It was essentially, he was a, I think he was a major general. um, And it, it wasn't. He wasn't originally supposed to stay as long as he stayed. He was, uh, I believe, supposed to go down to the Southern Army too. But as as the situation developed, he found he found the need to stay here. But but what I what I admire about him is he realized 
there's um there's a really important thing going on down in the Carolinas with General Green and his job. He saw his first job was to support General Green. The problem is when Benedict Arnold invaded in eighty one. I should say Stupin arrived in Virginia in December, probably even um, late November, if I'm, I think exactly. And so he kind of takes charge over over all the forces here. He's he's that top military guy in Virginia. Now there's really not anything going on when he gets here. There's no British troops in Virginia yet, but within four or five weeks, Arnold shows Benedict Arnold shows up, and so that becomes a focus of course governor jefferson and then steuben has to deal with that um and that distracts kind of postpones um sending troops down he steuben had managed to send 450 18 month men the first one actually the first batch of them um in mid-december they'd gone on down uh, to join general green but the next group wasn't quite ready yet and then when arnold showed up it created a lot of chaos but he finally got them on the way in February, um, and those guys got there just in time to join the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Um, and that was it. After that, uh, Steuben, as much as he tried um, or wanted to, he just couldn't send anybody else down. I believe General Green even told him not to because um, there was so, the British were paying so much more attention uh, or so much attention to Virginia that it was impossible to send any more troops out of Virginia. We, we needed more troops in Virginia. That's why Washington sends Lafayette down with a thousand light infantry and then the Pennsylvanians come down. So, you know, Steuben was put in a very, almost an impossible situation. And, um, and he was doing what, what he was supposed to do, help general green as best he could until circumstances forced him to, uh, to adjust. Um, and then there was the incident. There were, you know, I, I won't get into that, what happened in the summer of '81 with him so much. Um, there was, you know, there are. He has his detractors. Uh, uh, let me say at that point in the war, but that's a different topic for a different time. After their formation, where did they serve? Yeah, love to, love to. Okay. So keep in mind that not, not all of them actually left Virginia. There was a, there was some that stayed here, but we'll talk about the ones that um, went south first. Um, first thing to keep in mind was that um, after Charleston fell, there and the, most of the Continental Line was a uh, Virginia line was gone, um, and the Waxhaws, I should say, and the, most of the line is gone. There was still a couple hundred scattered men that they pieced together, and then they supplemented them with state. Virginia state troops that are kind of like the national guard, I suppose, in between militia and regular army. And so those guys, um, end up going down to join general Horatio Gates after the disaster at Camden in August. And they're under, um, Abraham Buford. So, but they're not 18 month men. They, those guys are the last of the, um, old Virginia continentals and also some state troops. And so the 18 month men don't start showing up, in uh, Chesterfield until the fall, right around September and October. And then the first batches sent down under John Green, Colonel John Green, to um, join General Green, uh, Nathaniel Green, um, in mid-December. And they probably don't get there until January, mid-January. And then the next batch is sent down under Richard Campbell, and and that's another 400 men. And they show up... um, right around early March. They leave in February and they get there in early March. They only have to go to North Carolina, 
because um, because that's where the army is kind of shifted. So what do you got? You got 450 and 400. That's 858 month men plus the remnants of Buford's guys. And I don't know how many of them. I know some of them fought at, at Calpens and maybe were in the race to the Dan. But I think a lot of them probably went home um, before even Guilford. Their, their term of service must have been up. So in any case, those eight, 850 men are going to fight. And that's it for the 18-month men in the South. They're going to fight at Guilford Courthouse in March. And then in April, they're going to fight at Hop Creek Hill. And then in June, at, at late May, early June, they're going to fight at uh, 96, the Siege of 96. And then in September, they're going to fight in, um, at Utah Spring. So those are four significant battles that these 18-month men engaged in. And so that's, that's the group that was down um, in there. There was one more group of 18-month men that you could call under uh, Colonel, well, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gaskins. And his guys end up getting attached to General Anthony Wayne's um, Pennsylvanians in the summer of 81. And they end up serving at Yorktown. So they're there for the siege of Yorktown. They're the Virginia Continentals that were at Yorktown. And they may have, I have a theory that, that Gaskins actually fought at the Battle of, um, of um, Greenspring, which was a pretty neat little engagement in July as one of, uh, of um, General Wayne's battalions. But I, I have to dig in on that a little bit because everybody, everybody thinks they, or says they were all Pennsylvanians under his command, but Gaskins was placed under Wayne's command um, earlier. So I think he might have, the Virginians might have been at that battle at Greenspring too, but they were definitely at Yorktown. So that's it. That that, that takes care of for essentially. And I'm not sure of the number of Gaskins had. Maybe maybe 400 um, Continentals there too. Nathaniel Green will take them ultimately back to Virginia. What happens next? That you got me on that one. I don't know. I mean, their their term of enlistment was to the end of the year. And as draftees, I can only speculate that, um, you know, after Utah Spring and after Yorktown, um, I think I think their terms of service are just about up. And I know I know in 82, 1782, Virginia is still scrambling to raise troops. And I know that I, uh, Thomas Posey, Colonel Thomas Posey, does go down south and ends up fighting with Virginia Continentals um, under General... Um, Green and Wayne, Anthony Wayne again, uh, down in Georgia. But I, 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 I'm afraid 1782, 83, I haven't delved into that as I, uh, I kind of stopped with the 18 month men in December and pretty much after uh, Yorktown and, and, um, Utah spring, I, I, I kind of, I just assumed that their service kind of, you know, they just return home and are discharged. What does this whole process reveal to us about the larger revolutionary story? Well, I'm not sure a lot of people are aware of the need to draft men, you know, at that point, at, at some point in the war um, and ha- and just how fatigued uh, a state like Virginia was. And, and I'm sure the other states were also resorting to that too. I mean, it was, there was a, a steady progression of, uh, of um, bon- bounties. The bounties kept getting bigger and bigger. And of course, inflation was rampant too, unfortunately. So um, it's all relative. But 
it was getting harder and harder to find um, find soldiers to serve. And I think honestly, um, the lesson is about expectations, about having kind of realistic expectations. I mean, like I said earlier, they went in and only had one-year terms of service because they thought the war would be over in a year, and then two years, and nope, and three years, or the duration is what they called it. So if it ended within the three years, earlier than the three years, they'd be out. That still wasn't enough because it ended up being an eight-year war. And uh, and so that that's a lesson. Um, I think both sides probably went in with unrealistic expectations, but also just the need. Um, and I don't think it's any sort of like um, negative, like um, commentary on the cause or anything. I think human nature plays a role. People just get tired uh, of, of the suffering and the, and, and the hardship. And so the draft was necessary in order to keep, keep enough troops in the field. Um, you know, and to think otherwise is kind of being romantic. You know, you're almost being you're, uh, too romantic. You know, um, I, I imagine people. I, I, most people know there were drafts in World War Two and World War One for the same reason. Not at first. Didn't really need them at first. I mean, the drafts were there, but you didn't need them. There were plenty of volunteers. But as the war drags on, people sour and reality sets in, and all of a sudden it's not so cool anymore to be involved. So that's what I'd say. Um, and the other thing I've learned from all this is I used to kind of dismiss the 18 month men. I'd never thought of them as, as continentals in the same sense of, of the early continentals that served at Trenton and Princeton and Brandywine and Germantown, all that, um, those Virginians, but these guys, they definitely earned, earned, uh, their keep there. They earned their, um, I don't know, their stripes, so to speak in, in the South. So. Uh, I have a much more, a much greater respect for him now. Mike Sasir, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>